Hello, and welcome to Runkle of the Bailey. My name is Ian Runkle. I'm a Canadian criminal defense and firearms lawyer. And today I want to talk about how a self-defense issue is headed off to the Supreme Court. So that is the case of Peter Kill and Her Majesty the Queen. Now, this is just a decision on leave. So what that means is that you can't just go to the Supreme Court just because you want to. There's one of two ways that a criminal file gets to the Supreme Court. The first method is if you have a dissenting judgment at the Court of Appeal, that gives you, you can appeal as of right. So what that means is you can just bring the appeal. You don't need to go through a second step. But if you don't have that, then you have to ask the court permission. You have to ask for leave to appeal. And the Supreme Court's default answer on that is no. What the Supreme Court usually says is, we don't want to hear this because it's not important enough. The Supreme Court is busy. They only deal with cases that have some sort of national importance, where the decision, because of the principles of law that they're going to set down or to reject, uh, is going to affect more than just one case. It's going to affect lots of potential cases. So any time a case goes to the Supreme Court, it's a big deal. Now, we see up here the, the decision on leave, and it just notes the application for leave from the judgment of the Court of Appeal, and they list which judgment, is granted. That's all we get on a leave application. So thank you for watching. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to go into the, uh, in order to understand what's going on here, let's go back to the Court of Appeal decision, and we can talk a little bit about the procedural history for how this got here. So this is the Court of Appeal decision, and if, you've, if you're sharp-eyed, you've probably noticed that this one is Her Majesty the Queen and Peter Kill. The reason for that is that, the reason why those names have switched around is that at the Court of Appeal level, it's Mr. Kill who's the one who's appealing the decision, because he doesn't like the Court of Appeal decision. At the Court of Appeal decision, it was the Queen who was appealing the trial decision because they didn't like the trial decision. So Mr. Kill won at trial and then lost at the Court of Appeal, and now he's going to the Supreme Court. So that tells us a little bit about what was going on here. Mr. Kill had a jury trial, and we see that here on appeal from the acquittal, sitting with the jury. So they have the basic facts, which are the respondent, Peter Kill, shot and killed Jonathan Stiers. He was charged with second-degree murder. At trial, Mr. Kill testified that he shot Mr. Stiers in self-defense, believing Mr. Stiers was armed and about to shoot him. We also see that the jury acquitted, indicated that, indicating that it had a reasonable doubt on self-defense. So, in terms of how the Crown can appeal a jury verdict, they're very limited. They're, they can't go in and just say, well, we think the jury got it wrong. What they need to do is attack the legal framework. So, at a, at a jury trial, there's actually two people who are deciding issues. The jury decides on the issues of fact. They decide what happened. But the judge, or the justice, is the one who decides the issues of law. They decide what the law is that applies. And so the judge or justice has to instruct the jury as to what the law is and to indicate how they should make their decision once they have the facts. So here is the, the rules of the game, and you guys decide what happened and then apply those rules that I've told you. So the Crown can attack those things. They can attack the legal arguments. So that's what they're doing here. So they've said, uh, 
they're advancing four grounds of appeal, and they lose on three of them. Three allege misdirection in respect of self-defense. So they're saying that the justice at the trial told the jury that the law was something and that was wrong on the issues of self-defense. And that's where we're uh, that's where we're sitting. So the Court of Appeal allows the appeal and orders a new trial. They say they agree with the Crown submission that the trial judge failed to instruct the jury to consider Mr. Kill's conduct during the incident leading up to the shooting of Mr. Stiers when assessing the reasonableness of that shooting. I do not agree that the trial judge made the other errors advanced by the Crown. So what this means is that they say that the the jury should have been instructed to consider what Mr. Kill's actions were in terms of the lead up here and whether those might undermine the self-defense argument. Let's take a brief look at what happened here. So Mr. Kill is a millwright, although he's also a former army reservist, and he was worried about Miss Benko's safety while he was gone. They lived in the country, and his neighbors had told him about numerous break-ins in the area. But a week before the homicide, Miss Benko had told Mr. Kill that she thought she had heard someone using the keypad lock on the door, apparently trying to gain entry to the home. Uh, Miss Kill is, at the time, his girlfriend. On the night of the homicide, Miss Benko awoke to a loud noise outside of the home. She woke Mr. Kill. He heard two loud bangs coming from the area of the garage. Mr. Kill knew that his garage door opener was in the truck and worried that someone might gain entry to the garage using the opener. And once they gain entry to the garage, there's a concern that they might gain entry to the house. He also kept a knife in the truck, which he feared could be used as a weapon by the intruder. So he's worried that these people might gain access to a weapon and then gain access to the house and be a threat. Mr. Kill also kept a shotgun in the closet of his bedroom. He had ammunition for the shotgun in the bedroom, and he explained to the court that he kept the gun and ammunition in the bedroom because he anticipated that if the need to use the gun to defend himself and Ms. Blanco ever rose at night, that need would probably occur while they were in their bedroom. He had the appropriate license for the shotgun. He took the shotgun out of its gun sock and removed the trigger lock. He removed two shotgun shells from the drawer and loaded them into the gun, racking one into the chamber. Put the safety on the weapon, and although it was the middle of winter, he left the bedroom in his bare feet, wearing only a t-shirt and boxer shorts, and carrying the loaded shotgun. So he's leaving in something of a hurry. He had decided that if he came upon an intruder, he would disarm that intruder, if necessary, and detain him. He insisted that he was instinctively following his military training. And when he was asked if he was ready to kill somebody if necessary, he responded, Yes, I have deadly force with me. He goes out. And he heads out to where he sees this person. And he sees a person, Mr. Stiers, leaning against the front passenger seat of the truck. His feet are on the ground beside the passenger door. He doesn't know Mr. Stiers, and Mr. Stiers does not appear to know that he's there. It's dark. He can't see his face. And so he believes that there's just one person breaking into the truck. He says, hey, hands up. And the individual, Mr. Stiers, begins to turn. He had been taught to focus on the target's hands, so that's where his eyes are. He sees Mr. Steyer's hands moving in unison downward towards his waist, and keep in mind, this is Mr. Kill's evidence, but it was probably accepted by the jury if they ultimately acquitted on the self-defense issue. Mr. Kill saw Mr. Steyer's hands moving in unison downward toward his waist. His hands came together at the waist and pointed toward Mr. Kill. 
Based on these movements and his Army Reservist training, Mr. Kill believed Mr. Styers had a gun and was turning it to point at Mr. Kill. And they say that they were about 12 feet apart. He says he believes that he faced a life-or-death situation, shoot or be shot. He raised his shotgun, removed the safety, and fired, aiming at Mr. Styers' chest. He immediately racked the gun and fired a second time, again aiming at the chest. Mr. Kill testified that he'd been trained to fire twice and to aim at center mass. Both shots struck Mr. Styers. One entered his chest directly and the other passed through his arm and into his chest. Now, for those who don't have a lot of gun knowledge, it's worthwhile to sort of go over what's happening here because the or the court breaks this into a number of steps, but it's important to realize that for somebody trained, these steps would happen all at once. So raising the shotgun and removing the safety, if you're somebody who's familiar with a shotgun, you've practiced with that shotgun, that's probably happening in the same motion. And fired, aiming at Mr. Steyer's chest. So this, we're not talking about something where he's sort of lifting it up and then taking a step and then firing. We're probably talking about a motion that's just up and fire. And then racks the gun, fires a second time, again aiming at the chest. I often get asked by people who are not sort of gun familiar why somebody, usually why police aren't shooting for like people's legs or their arms. And the reason why anybody, police, military, and so forth, are trained to aim at the chest is that when you're running around, when you're moving, your chest moves the slowest out of all of your limbs. Your arms and legs can move quickly. And in a stressful situation, or in fact just in general, it's hard to hit a target. And so you want to aim for the largest target. This isn't sort of aiming to kill. This is aiming to stop people. And the chest is the largest, broadest target. It's where you aim because you just, if you're actually in a life or death situation, you don't have time for trick shots. You don't have time to get clever. So that's why that training is there. Mr. Shotgun, or sorry, Mr. Kill put a shotgun in the house and went back outside to try to help Mr. Styers. So after this shooting, he's gone into the house. Ms. Benko is on the phone calling 911. He goes back out and applies CPR for several minutes to no avail. So Mr. Styers at this point is dead. Uh, he goes back outside to wait for the arrival of the police and tells the police that he's acted in self-defense and believes that Mr. Styers was about to shoot him. He was asked why he didn't call 911 and wait for the police, and he indicated that he could have done so but wasn't trained to do so and had fallen into his training. He also agreed in cross-examination that there were other reasonable things he could have done rather than seeking out and confronting the intruder in the manner he did. Mr. Kill indicated that none of these other options came to his mind. He insisted that he feared for his and Ms. Benko's safety and was falling back on my military training. So I don't have military training myself, but I've had the opportunity to speak to many people who do. And quite frequently, they indicate that when stressful situations happen, they fall back on sort of practiced routines, things they've been taught to, to deal with. And so it's not a matter of thinking things out at the time. It's a matter of following the patterns that you've that you know what to do, you know, that you have been trained on. So that's what he's indicating is here. There's also a great deal of forensic evidence, which means they would have had investigators going through and looking, you know, where are, where's a spent shell landed? Where, you know, all of these things, what's the blood spray? What's, 
And we don't get much of a detail on that, just a vague summary that says, as I understand that evidence, it did not necessarily contradict Mr. Kill's testimony in any material way. So his testimony and the forensic evidence are consistent. Turning now to the legal issues, this is the ground on which the Court of Appeal eventually grants the uh, the Crown's request to overturn the previous trial and to direct a new trial. I'm not going to cover the issues that the court rejected, but this is the one that they ultimately found was enough to overturn the acquittal and make Mr. Kill go back for another trial. So did the trial judge fail to instruct the jury that in considering the reasonableness of Mr. Kill's act, they were required to consider his role in the incident and whether either Mr. Kill or Mr. Stiers had or used a weapon? So we see here, the trial judge did not identify Mr. Kill's use of the shotgun as a separate factor for the jury to consider in determining the reasonableness of Mr. Kill's shooting of Mr. Stiers. The use of the shotgun was, however, the essence of the act. It is impossible to imagine how the jury could divorce the use of the weapon by Mr. Kill from the assessment of the reasonableness of the shooting. So the Crown had argued that the jury needed to have been specifically told to consider the shotgun. The Court of Appeal is actually rejecting that here. You're saying, I have no doubt they appreciated the significance of Mr. Kill's possession and use of the shotgun to their determination of the reasonableness of the shooting. They pretty much had to. This case hinges around a shotgun. So that isn't the main, uh, main issue here, but they say nowhere in his instructions did the trial judge tell the jury to consider Mr. Kill's role in the incident in assessing the reasonableness of the shooting of Mr. Stiers. For reasons I will explain, this was an important omission. And this is actually built into the legislation. So the conduct of the accused during the incident may color the reasonableness of the ultimate act. Placed in the context of the evidence of the case, Mr. Kill's behavior from the moment he looked out his bedroom window and saw that the dash lights were on until the moment he shot and killed Mr. Stiers had to be examined when assessing the ultimate reasonableness of the shooting. Section 34 sub 2 sub c renders an accused conduct during the incident relevant even though the conduct is not unlawful or provocative, as that word was defined in the prior self-defense provisions. So previously, we were talking about provocation in the sense of something where you're uh, initiating some sort of confrontation or the like. That's not, uh, they're saying that your behavior is relevant. It doesn't have to rise to some that sort of level. So the court must consider whether the accused behavior throughout the incident shed light or sheds light on the uh, nature and extent of the accused responsibility for the final confrontation that culminated in the act giving rise to the charge. It is for the trier of fact, judge or jury, to decide the weight that should be given to the accused behavior throughout the incident when deciding the ultimate question of the reasonableness of the act giving rise to the charge. And what they mean by reasonableness is that this is a situation where there's a an objective component to this. So not only do you have to believe that you were in danger, but that belief has to be objectively reasonable in some fashion. It's got to be something where you're not just somebody who is prone to being paranoid or prone to jumping to that sort of conclusion. There has to be actual meaningful reasons why a reasonable person would also be afraid in that situation. So that's what they're talking about, the reasonableness of that action. It's not just what Mr. Kill was thinking and what Mr. Kill was doing, but whether or not the reasonable person would have taken those steps. So 
This paragraph signals that where the facts suggest that the accused played a role in bringing the conflict about, that fact should be taken into account in deliberations about whether his or her ultimate response was reasonable in the circumstances. They say, on the evidence, the jury could have taken different views of Mr. Kill's role in the incident. On one view, the jury could have found Mr. Kill took a series of steps bringing about the confrontation with Mr. Stiers, while at the same time failing to take measures that could well have avoided the ultimate conflict. For example, Mr. Kill could have called the police and waited in the house for their arrival. If the jury concluded that Mr. Kill's conduct leading up to the shooting was in some respects unreasonable, if not reckless, and contrary to his military training, the jury may have decided that Mr. Kill bore significant responsibility for the confrontation that ended in Mr. Steyer's death. On that view of the evidence, and note the court here isn't saying that that's the correct view, they're saying that had the jury been instructed, they might have come to this conclusion, but they might not have. So on that view of the evidence, Mr. Kill's role in the incident would not support his claim that he acted reasonably when he shot Mr. Stiers. However, they also note the jury could have taken a different view of Mr. Kill's role in the incident. The jury could have determined that Mr. Kill had good reason to be concerned about the safety of his wife and himself. The jury could further have determined that in the circumstances, it was reasonable for Mr. Kill to take the proactive measures he had been taught as an army reservist to find and neutralize the threat before it materialized. On that assessment of the evidence, Mr. Kill's conduct during the incident leading up to the shooting supported the defense position that the shooting was reasonable in the circumstances. So the Court of Appeal is saying that the jury should have been instructed to think about these things and to consider them and to come to a decision on which sort of thought they had on this and that because they weren't instructed on that, that ultimately this is an error in the judge's role as the trier of fact, as the or sorry, the trier of law here, the person who decides who the what the law is, and then puts that to the jury to decide what facts they consider to be accurate. So the jury was not told that they must consider Mr. Kill's conduct during the incident that ended with Mr. Steyer's death and Mr. Kill's responsibility for the confrontation when assessing the reasonableness of Mr. Kill's shooting of Mr. Steyer's. So that's the uh, the main issue there. They also go on and note, I appreciate there was no objection to the charge. So the Crown got a chance to review the instructions that were being put to the jury and then decided not to uh, not to object, or they didn't object. I also appreciate that this is a Crown appeal. Appellate courts should be reluctant to set aside acquittals based on legal arguments that were not made at trial. Nevertheless, they do so here. And part of that is because they say that they don't think that the failure to object to the charge was in any way a tactical consideration, but and also that they are satisfied that the Crown has met its burden to show that in the concrete reality of this case, the non-direction with respect to Mr. Kill's role in the incident had a material bearing on the verdict, which means that it could have changed the outcome because the Court of Appeal isn't going to grant a new trial if the error is just something minor or trivial, and ultimately it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. The next thing I want to examine is what does this mean both for Mr. Kill and for society at large? I've seen a lot of comments where people are upset that this is going to the Supreme Court because they're supporters of Mr. Kill and they feel that he's somehow been wronged here. That's not the case. Mr. Kill is the one applying for leave. He wants the Supreme Court to re-examine and hopefully reject the Ontario Court of Appeal decision because if the Court of Appeal decision stands, 
he gets sent back for a new trial, and a new trial on second-degree murder. That's a heavy sentence if he's convicted, so he's got a lot of risk. The mandatory minimum sentence on second-degree murder is life in prison. And there is possibility of parole, but he'd be on parole for the rest of his life. He'd always have that hanging over him. He doesn't want to face that risk again. He wants the Supreme Court to say, Court of Appeal, you were wrong. Trial decisions should stand. And then Mr. Kill walks out the door. He's done with these charges. He's acquitted. He's a free man. It's like it never happened. But we need to also examine what does this mean for society? Because ultimately the Supreme Court is going to decide one way or the other. But there's a number of possible reasons why they might have taken this case. As I noted before, we don't get their actual reasons in the leave decision. We don't know yet. So all we can do is make our best guesses. The first possibility is that they could want to look at self-defense provisions. So they could very well be saying, here is how self-defense is supposed to work. That'll be big. And that'll be an important aspect. And for that reason alone, I'm going to be watching what happens to this case when it goes to the Supreme Court. But those aren't the only issues that the Supreme Court could have taken an interest in. They could also have taken an interest in the question of what level of error is required for the Court of Appeal to flip a trial decision. So they could have said, or the Supreme Court could be looking at how serious of a mistake does it take to order a new trial. That test of when does this materially affect or potentially materially affect the verdict. So they could be essentially taking a position that they want trials to be a little more secure by forcing the Court of Appeal to a higher standard, or they could be saying that the Court of Appeal should be able to weigh in a little more freely. That's a less interesting issue from a self-defense perspective, but it's still fairly interesting for lawyers, and especially any lawyers who deal with appeals. The other issue I could see them wanting to address is the fact that the Crown hadn't raised these objections at trial. So the Supreme Court might be saying that we want these decisions raised at the trial level so that the trial decisions are more certain and that the trial judge has the opportunity to consider these issues when they bring the charge to the jury because both sides have a positive obligation at that stage to spot problems and to raise them if they have concerns. That way, trials are more certain because if the issues had to have been raised, then it isn't a matter of sort of going back through and deciding if maybe you should have done a little better and maybe if you had made these other arguments, you might have prevailed. So the Supreme Court could well be looking at this not from the perspective of the self-defense issues, but from the perspective of trial fairness or in trial certainty issues. If that's the case, ultimately this may end up being a decision that's of more interest to lawyers and legal scholars than it is to the self-defense and fire moaning community. But I'm going to be watching this case. I will definitely follow up once we have a Supreme Court ruling on this one way or the other, because there's going to be a lot of people who are interested in this and who want to know what's happened and why it's happened. And I look forward to being able to explain that. If you found this useful and want to see more content, including an eventual follow-up with the Supreme Court decision, please like and subscribe, and especially please share this content. 
It does help, and I appreciate it. Thank you, and see you next time.